Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you would open up our hearts to hear it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love them to be a part of our Vine Kids time. They can go directly out the back door. We also have a middle school out the side door. I have a middle school age group that meets in the foyer out there. We'd love to have them be a part of that. If you're in the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th range, we'd love to have you be a part of those uh, that time out there as well um, this morning. Well, welcome. If you are here for the first time, again, I want to welcome you to the Vine Community Church. My name is Treb Prater. We are honored to have you here. It is our great privilege to have you in worship with us this Sunday. Thank you so much for giving us a Sunday morning. I tell you all the time, I really only have two deep kind of heart-driven expectations for you if you are here for the first time. It's one, that people will just be nice to you. Um, I think that's really important, that people are just nice uh, to each other and to you as you come here. We hope you have a, a really great experience with people. But more importantly than even all that, we hope that you have an encounter with the risen Christ. Like, my deep goal is not that you'd want to come back, that you have this incredible experience where you're like, oh my gosh, what the, that's the best place ever. Our deep goal is just simply that you would encounter Jesus and that's really our entire goal in all of our um, Sunday morning kind of worship experiences, just that we would meet with Jesus. And, and the book of John, the gospel that we've been walking through, actually it is the entire intention of John, the author of this gospel, is to, is to let Jesus come alive, that his deity would be lifted out of these words and that the people that read his letter would know that Jesus is in fact God. His entire letter was really written so that we could see the deity of Christ. Every miracle, every relationship, every story, every word that recorded that Jesus said is designed so that we might see the elements that draw us to the deity of Christ. More so than telling the history of the life of Jesus or these great miracle moments as the other gospels do, John says, I want you to see and know that, that Jesus is God. I want you to see Jesus as the incarnation, the embodiment of God and the person of Jesus Christ. It's his whole goal that you might, that I might, that his reader might see Jesus. Which of course makes my job really easy as it should be anyway, is just simply to say my whole desire is for you to see Jesus in scripture. That's it. And so John actually paints that picture. And we are into week 62 of this sort of chaotic movement that's gone kind of word by word, line by line. We've taken some breaks here and there, and we've made it all the way into the very last night that Jesus is alive before his crucifixion. And we've spent a substantial amount of time there. In fact, almost the past two months or month and a half, we've really spent in this last few hours in the life of Jesus before the wheels of his crucifixion and betrayal and death and resurrection are all set in motion. Jesus has this incredibly long, lengthy discourse that we call the farewell discourse, where he is talking to his disciples in these sort of incredibly plain terms, preparing them for what is to come. With almost just a few interruptions, Jesus has this long extended period of teaching where he basically is readying them for a life that won't have his physical presence. And he's talking plainly and he's talking clearly. And as if you've been here for the past few weeks, you'll know that the disciples have been really hung up here. They've been stuck. In fact, it's safe to say that they haven't recognized much of what Jesus is saying because they're hung on the words where Jesus told them that he is going away and that where he's going, they cannot come. Not yet. 
In fact, we see Philip and Peter and Thomas, they all sort of rifle off these questions going, what are you talking about? Because they're all stuck on the fact that they followed Jesus for three years, every day, every moment, every part of his life. They've gone to all of these places. They've nearly died for him. They've given up everything they have. And now Jesus is telling them that they can no longer go with him. And of course, their minds and hearts are fixed on things that are physical and not on the spiritual. And they don't understand, even though Jesus is talking plainly and is telling them that he's returning to the Father, They still don't get it. And so they're hung on that. And so Jesus keeps teaching and they keep missing it, right? And so for the past weeks, we've really been exploring these texts. And we're drawing closer and closer and closer to the betrayal. Now, you remember Judas Iscariot has already left the upper room. He got up at the moment that Jesus sort of appointed him to get up and he left the room and he made his way to the chief priests. And in a matter of moments or hours, he is going to return with this angry mob to seize Jesus, and all of his friends are going to betray him and run. And we're getting closer and closer and closer to that moment. And as Jesus is making his way to the Mount of Olives, they've left the upper room, making their way to the Mount of Olives, he is still teaching. And last week we looked at these four verses in the first part of 16 where Jesus tells them, I want you to understand as I'm talking more and more plainly that there are a few things that are coming when I leave and I want you to be ready for them because I do not want you to be surprised. And all last week we unpacked those two things. And he says, there are two things that I want you to be aware of. And it's not an exhaustive list, but it was the two things that he lifted up. He says, when I go, I want you to be ready because they will basically kick you out of the synagogue and there is a time that is coming that when they kill you they will see it as a service to God and so we explored those two phrases and talked about the idea that as followers of Christ persecution is incredibly real and we talked about its implications all over the world and its implications to us and to the disciples and the fact that most of them would die for Jesus that there was a time that every one of them would give their life for Christ, right? We talked about the idea of being removed from the synagogue, the familial implications that that had, the cultural implications of being shamed out of your entire culture, right? Not just not going to church, but being kicked out of everything that happened publicly and culturally and what that brought upon your family. And that that was just the tip of the iceberg because there was a time where they would die for Jesus. And even says it, a time is coming where that when they kill you, not when they, kill, when they might try and kill you, but when they kill you, they will do it, and they will do it as a service to the Lord, or so they will think. And so Jesus doesn't interject and say, there's a time that's coming that when they kill you, I'll stop them. They're going to be idle threats. Don't you worry. He says, no, there's a time that's coming that they will kill you, and they will think they're doing it as a service to the Lord. And we talked about this, the reality of this persecution that was going to outbreak and we talked about the fact that Jesus is leaving and his leaving is going to spark this and he says I want you to remember that they hated me first and so we talked about sort of the way that the culture hates Jesus and all that he is and so this is where we left off last week in that same breath of this horrible awful awful hate-filled worldly news where the disciples are hearing that to follow Jesus is going to cost them their lives. And then in that exact same breath as we're going to see today, he's going to say, this is actually a really good thing. It's a really great thing, actually. And it's going to be hard for the disciples to swallow and they're going to get confused. But we're going to see this morning how Jesus turns those awful worldly implications and things upside down and redeems them because he is in fact God. 
So if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 16, and we're going to make it through a few verses there. We're going to see five things that Jesus says, and I'll kind of briefly walk through them, and then I'm going to show you how those five things are actually really amazing things for you and me. So if you've got your Bible, open up to John chapter 16, verse 5, and then we are going to uh, dive in it together this morning. And before we do that, as we always do, let's go before the Lord and pray, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us this morning. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that your word is living and active that it is sharper than an double-edged sword, that it penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, that this is the breath of God, that your word is God-breathed, that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we do not take it lightly. Your word is the moral truth for our lives. It is the place by which you reveal yourself to us. And so, Lord, we take this moment on this Sunday, very seriously, as we open your word and let you teach our hearts. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Not to worry about my words or what you're going through or dealing with, but just to lay your heart bare and say, Lord, teach me. As we do each week, take a moment and pray for somebody else around you. We want to be a church that is driven by the desire to pray for other people. Everything that unfolds on a Sunday morning is not about you. So pray that God would move in the hearts of the people around you. Maybe you know them, maybe you don't. Just pray for them. If you know their name, pray for them by name. God, move in this person's life. Draw them to you. Teach their heart. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified above all, that you would be exalted and lifted up. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we left off last week in this sort of dire text where Jesus says to them that they will do these things. They will put you out of the synagogue. They will will kill you because they think they're offering a service to God, and they do these things And I have told you this, and when the time comes, you remember that I warned you. But remember, they hated me first, right? So Jesus leaves them with that. And this is what he says in verse 5 going down. Now, I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks, where are you going? Because I have said these things. You are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you cannot see me any longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, much more than you can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me again. So if you look at that text at kind of face value, it's really, really complicated. It's deep, and it's way beyond what the disciples at this point in time are able to sort of comprehend. 
They are so hung on the fact that Jesus is going away and they can't go that their souls are deeply grieved. In fact, Jesus says to them that they are so deeply grieved that he can actually see it, right? I've said these things to you and you are filled with grief. He even says, I've got more to tell you, but it's more than you can bear. So the disciples are taking this seriously. Now you have to understand they've, they've kept their lives in lockstep with Jesus for all these years and they are grieved. And so in this complicated, deep, sort of rich theological text, Jesus is going to say five things, <clears throat> five really important things. And I'm going to really quickly go through those and then I want to show you why those five things are actually really incredible kind of things for you and for me. They're in, it's incredible news. And, it, and we've got to look at them in that fashion because Jesus' instruction to the disciples are actually instructions for you and for me as followers of Christ. Okay, so we're going to glance at them quickly and then I'm going to pull them out and I'm going to tell you why they're so great. The first one comes right there at the beginning. And the first one really is, and it's good that Jesus says, it is good that I am going away because the counselor or the Holy Spirit will come. So the first thing that Jesus said to them is, listen, I know I just told you that I'm going away, and because I'm going away, there is a persecution that is coming. There is a very real, tangible persecution that's coming. You will be kicked out of the synagogue culturally. You will be removed from that aspect of life. You will be shamed and public pushed, publicly pushed away. You will also die, probably for me, right? There will be people that will kill you, and they will do it as an blind sacrifice to the Lord, if you will. So Jesus says, this is what waits for you when I leave. But let me tell you something. It is a really good thing that I am going. Now for the disciples, of course, they're not going to understand this. Their whole lives were marked by giving them to Jesus. They had walked with him. They had laid down their nets. They had left their families. They had left all their people. They had followed Jesus around. They had nearly died for them. And now they're in such deep grief that Jesus says, I can't even keep telling you the things that are coming because you can't handle it. And their grief is driven by two things. It's driven by love and it's driven by ignorance. Love because they deeply loved Jesus. They have walked away from everything for him and ignorance because they don't understand how Jesus returning to the Father, they don't even get it, is actually going to be an incredible thing for them. And Jesus says, unless I return to the Father, right, unless I go, I cannot send the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, I am going to go and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and it is going to be amazing. And we're going to get into that in a little bit in a moment. But the first thing that Jesus says is that it's actually a good thing. Even though my going is going to bring about persecution and pain and shame and death, right? It's a really amazing thing that's going to happen. Because I will send the Holy Spirit, which of course is really hard to understand. But it's really true. The second thing he says is that the Holy Spirit will guide you, right? Or the Holy Spirit, excuse me, will come and convict the world of sin. So there's a role that the Holy Spirit plays. We're going to see two of those things lifted up. The Holy Spirit is going to come, and it's going to convict the world of sin, right? It's going to come and convict through sin and righteousness and judgment. And this Holy Spirit, the, sec the third thing Jesus is going to say is the Holy Spirit comes to guide you in truth. But he says, look, the role of the Holy Spirit is going to come, and it's going to convict the world. It's going to convict the world. And it's going to convict the world, and he lays out these three deep, complicated categories of convict the world of sin, and convict the world through righteousness, and convict the world of judgment. And he kind of gives a little picture of each of those. Sin because they didn't believe in me. 
because I told them and I showed them and I demonstrated them through words and wonder, yet the world did not believe but the Father sent me. They didn't believe who I said I was, so they stand condemned because of their lack of belief in who I am. They stand condemned in their own righteousness because I am returning to the Father. I told you that's where I came. I'm returning through the resurrection, and I will have victory over death. And they stand condemned in judgment, Jesus says, because the prince of this world stands condemned. And Jesus rightly, of course, says that this world is not governed by anyone else but the evil one. And Jesus' death and resurrection pronounces judgment on the evil one. And so Jesus says that the Holy Spirit's going to come and it's going to convict the world. It's going to convict the world and condemn the world through sin and through righteousness and through judgment, through all those pieces. Really complicated things. And we're going to get to why that's great in just a moment, but I just want you to hear what he says, right? So the Holy Spirit's coming, and it's a good thing, and it's coming because he's going to convict the world. He's also going to guide you in truth. So the Holy Spirit's role is the the guider of truth. In fact, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit in that very next verse the spirit of truth. And we see this sort of picture of the Holy Spirit as this continuing role of Jesus' earthly ministry where Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. That the Spirit is the extension of the person of Jesus Christ guiding the followers in all truth. That Jesus' desire is that the disciples would follow living lives of truth. And the Holy Spirit's role, not to walk alongside us as Jesus physically did, but to dwell within the life of a believer. That at Pentecost, the believers would be filled with the Holy Spirit. The promise it is for you and I, that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in us and will guide us in truth. So Jesus is essentially saying, I'm not leaving you alone. Before I was guiding you, as I walked with you, I would show you, I'd point out, I would teach with authority and power as the truth. And when I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to guide you in truth through the convictions of your soul because I will be with you. You're not alone. So it's good that I'm going, right? Because the Holy Spirit is coming and the Holy Spirit will convict the world, will condemn the world, but the Holy Spirit will guide you in truth. He goes on to say in that fourth thing that the Holy Spirit will glorify me, right? He says this, he says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak what he hears. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. So he says the role of the Holy Spirit is actually going to be to glorify the Son. He will take what was mine, which belonged to the Father, and he will show it to you. And in these verses, and I'm going to get to this in just a second, we see this incredibly deep yet beautiful, profound picture of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is wrapped up in these verses. That what belongs to the Father belongs to the Son, and the Spirit reveals it to the followers of Christ. And by doing that, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. And we have this incredible picture of the Holy Spirit that is both Father and Son and these coextensive persons, not separate gods, working in unison as one, right? Convicting, empowering, guiding in truth, and glorifying. So the Holy Spirit will come and he will glorify me. And then finally, Jesus says in that little fifth thing, he says, you will see me again. 
Now, for the disciples that think that Jesus is going and they can't return, this is actually incredible news, right? They don't understand the full picture. We have, of course, a scope of Scripture that knows that Jesus, in a matter of hours, is going to be brought before uh, the chief priests by this angry mob of people that want him dead, and he's going to then be handed over to Pilate, and he's going to be crucified, and he's going to die, and the disciples know none of those things. But he knows that for a while they will not see him, and he will literally die on a cross and be taken, resurrected. The women will run to the tomb that morning. They will roll back the stone, right? Or the stone will actually be rolled away when they get there, and there will be no Jesus. There will be a time where you no longer see me. But he says, but you will see me again. Scholars have argued over kind of what Jesus is saying here, but I think it's pretty clear. He's basically saying that, listen, don't panic when you don't see me because I will show myself to you. That's exactly what Jesus does, right? Over 40 times he appears in resurrection appearances before he ascends into heaven in Acts 1. He even's going, he even's going to appear to the disciples. He's going to let Thomas, right, doubting Thomas, take his own hands and place him in Jesus' side in the nail marks. He's saying, look, there will be a time of hysteria and panic where you go and you don't see me. But then you will see me again. So these deep words of comfort. Now, if you look at this at face value, you'll understand why this passage is so complicated. And when you usually preach and teach to these things, right, it's really easy to just sort of skip over this stuff and jump into the credible moments where Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to stand in front of Pilate. He's going to do the things that only Jesus can do. And he's going to get crucified. And then he's going to get resurrected. And then we're going to have these incredible resurrection appearances. And it's really easy to just gloss over these chapters that we have here and say Jesus said a bunch of things to the disciples. But these things are really important. Now, they're theologically deep. But I want to show you why they're so incredible for you and for me, right? Because at face value, we can just go, man, those are Passovers. But when we start to think about how they impact our lives personally, they're really, really powerful. Now, those five things there, right? That first one where Jesus says, it's actually a really good thing, right, that I'm going because I will send the Holy Spirit. And what that means for you and what it means for me is that we've been given this incredible gift, now, I don't know if you've ever been like me, and, and you may not have, but there have been times in my life where I said, I would have loved to have been alive when Jesus was alive. Like, just to have seen those things, right, with my own eyes. To have seen the miraculous things that he's done. To witness those things. To ask a few questions of my own, right, because I've got a whole list of them that I want to ask Jesus. To walk alongside of him and to see him touch the eyes of the blind. To be there with those folks when he raised from the dead. How much deeper would my faith be if I could see those things myself? How much more kind of incredible would my heart be in my relationship with Jesus if I could have heard him speak? Would have been amazing, right? And at some point in time, maybe one of us or maybe it's just me have thought that would have been really awesome. But what Jesus tells the disciples is that there is actually something even better than standing beside me. It's actually better that I'm going because what I am giving you is incredible. This is the incredible promise of the Holy Spirit, you guys, is that we literally have the indwelling Spirit of God in us as followers of Christ. The Bible is incredibly clear that when we surrender our lives to Jesus, His Spirit, literally the Spirit of God, comes and takes up residence in our hearts and makes His dwelling place our lives. But John tells us that we are God's temple and he dwells in us 
right, as followers of Christ. The reason Jesus says this is so much better is because the Spirit comes, takes up residence in us, walks with us, guides us, instructs us, convicts us, empowers us. Every moment of every day, we are never without the presence of God, ever. As the disciples walked with Jesus, there were moments where they weren't physically present with Jesus. There were moments where he wasn't there, where they would be on their own. There were moments when they didn't have God's presence literally walking with them. And Jesus says, when I go, you will have the presence of God at every moment, at every time. Which means we have access to holy, magnificent, mighty God at every moment of every breath of all of our lives. We can call upon the Father. Before Jesus, we couldn't do that. We were sinful and broken and and disheveled, and we could not access holy, majestic God. But through the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit, we have bridged that deficit. We stand freed, and we have access to mighty God through the Holy Spirit. And Romans 8 tells us the Spirit intercedes for us, that the Spirit is our go-between between holy God dwelling in us. So this is why this is incredible for you. As much as it would be amazing me, as much as it would be amazing to walk with Jesus and, and talk with him, to have God's presence in us and dwelling in us at every moment of every day with every breath, giving us access to the Father all the time, is beyond comprehension. And yet most of us take that for granted. We forget that we are the dwelling place of God. We think that we have to show up to church on Sunday morning to somehow have our worship experience or encounter. And then as long as we hold it together till we make it back next Sunday, then we can meet with God again. It's a bankrupt theology. The reality is that God dwells in you. Your moment of worship is at every moment of every day of every second of your life because you are in the presence of God as he dwells in you. We don't show up at church when we finally get to meet with Jesus. We are meeting with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit every moment we come to this place to gather together in corporate worship. The incredible gift that we've been given is that God walks with you. That means in your darkest hour, in your deepest hurt, in your most unspeakable fear, God's presence as a follower of Christ is most literally with you and in you. And it's an incredible gift. And so Jesus says, look, it's better that I go because of what is coming. And for you and I, excuse me, for you and me, that is an incredible gift. The second thing we see there is that the Holy Spirit will come, as Jesus says, and convict the world. Sin, righteousness, judgment. What that means that for you, for you and I kind of tail, tails off that last section. It means that the world stands condemned. But you, as a follower of Christ, myself as a follower of Christ, we stand saved. Now, I can't stress this enough. We've talked about this a thousand times, that we are steeped in sin. It is a part of our very nature, our makeup. It's who we are. Our very kind of souls are corrupt. We are not sick. We are not broken. We are dead. Scripture says that you are dead in your sin. And nobody likes to hear it, but that does not make it untrue. We are sinful to the very core. Our humanity wrangles us sinful. The only access that we have to God himself is through the person of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that we put our faith in him, that God not only saves us, but he cleanses us and removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, makes our red or our crimson scarlet. That scarlet makes it white. 
purifies us, atones for us, redeems us, and saves us. You did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to earn it, and you did nothing to get it. But the Holy Spirit has come, and as followers of Christ, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, He takes over our life, dwells in us, saves us, and we no longer stand condemned before the judgment seat of God, but we stand free. We stand saved. So this Holy Spirit comes and convicts the world because the world is steeped in sin and death. But as a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and sets free. And so the reason the Holy Spirit coming is amazing for you and for me is because it sets us free. We no longer stand condemned in our sin and in, our right, and in righteousness and in judgment, as, as Jesus had said here, but we stand free to the Holy Spirit that he marks and seals our soul as saved and redeemed. Which is incredible. I mean, it is incredible, right? So we've got this picture that the Holy Spirit is coming, and that's a really incredible thing. It's a great thing. And we no longer stand condemned, right, as the Holy Spirit judges and basically convicts the world of sin. But we stand saved. He goes on to say, of course, that the Holy Spirit will guide you in truth, which was true for the disciples, and it's true for you and me. I mean, we live in a world where <clears throat> it's convoluted, right? Truth is convoluted. It's one of those things that's sort of marked by the morality of the masses. Whatever culture says is true, whatever the masses say is true, is true, right? We go on our college campuses and they tell us that there is no moral absolute truth. Truth is relative. It's open to pretty much whatever your interpretation is of it. And if you tell me that something is true and that it's an absolute truth, then not only are you foolish, but you're intolerant. We live in a culture that says, as long as it feels good to you, then it's true. Right? And we can make all those statements that you want to make in that kind of concept. Scripture paints an incredibly different picture about truth. Scripture paints a picture of an absolute truth about a God who is absolutely in love with you, who calls creation to love and live in him and live wholly different from culture. To live in a way that brings him honor and glory and uses his very word as the moral absolute standard by which creation is called to live. Not a subjective reality that we get to argue and debate, but the absolute moral standard by which we govern and live our lives because it brings God glory. And what Jesus says is the Holy Spirit has come dwelling in you to guide you in the truth that comes from the Father. So that truth does not shift like sands blown with the wind, but that truth is constant and is real and it is a person in Jesus Christ. And that no matter what culture tells you or deems or pushes or says, truth does not waver. There is a God. He is real. You are sinful, and we will stand before him. The Bible paints this picture of this absolute God who is full of absolute glory and absolute love and has an absolute picture of what lives should look like that honor and follow him. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us, convicting and empowering us, guiding us in truth so that we can follow the God that saved us, glorifying him with every step of our existence. 
It means that I choose the things of God over the things of me because they are truth. And in a world where truth is shifting like the sands, the Holy Spirit comes into our life convicting and empowering and guiding us in truth. So Jesus says, this is one of the roles the Holy Spirit will come. He will guide you in truth because culture, that point is everywhere. I mean, just think about it, the times in your life, just your pure 20, 30, 40, 50 years of how that needle of truth has moved by culture. Oh, what's acceptable and what's not and what's tolerant and what's not. That needle has fluctuated all over just in the past 15 years of my life. Holy Spirit comes and guides in a constant truth and the person of Jesus Christ pointing to the word of God by which all followers should anchor themselves right, to this moral, absolute truth that is in the person of Jesus. It means that our lives should be driven by our desire to love and live like him. The things that matter to him should matter to us. And that's what Jesus says next. He basically says that the Holy Spirit, right, he says, will glorify me. And so my thought is, how does that actually happen? And Jesus actually tells us. He says, the Holy Spirit will glorify me by basically making the things of God known to you. Now think about that for a moment. But the Holy Spirit is coming to make the things of God known to you. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. And all that belongs to the Father is mine. So what Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit is coming, and, and I haven't been able to tell you all these things because your grief is so huge. You can't bear it. But the Holy Spirit is coming. He's going to take all these things that are mine, and he's going to make them known to you. So the Holy Spirit is going to make known to you the things of Christ. And then Jesus says, but what is mine is actually the Father's. So what the Holy Spirit is going to do is he's going to make known to you the things of God. This incredible, beautiful picture of the Trinity by which the Holy Spirit says, as I dwell in you and lead you and guide you and empower you, I'm going to make known to your heart the things of God. Which means the things that matter to God should matter to you because the Holy Spirit is going to reveal them. The things that drive the heartbeat of God are going to matter to you because the Holy Spirit is going to reveal them. The things that matter to Jesus, the way that he lived, the way that he loved, the way that he walked, those things are going to matter to you because they matter to Jesus. And because they matter to Jesus, they were the things of God. Now, I don't know if you catch the implications of this, but I want you to understand this, is that the convictions that you begin to have in your soul as a follower of Christ are so often the things that God is pressing on you. Philippians tells us it is the Holy Spirit who wills in us to will and to act according to the purpose of God. What that means is the Holy Spirit is constantly revealing to you the things of God. And our role as followers of Christ is to say yes and to pursue the things of God, the deep convictions of your soul, right? The things that you believe God is pressing on you, the things that you read in Scripture that convict you, they're the things of God. The Holy Spirit is pressing them on you. He is revealing them to you because they belong to Jesus and they belong to the Father, which means don't ignore them. When you feel deep conviction about, hey, I, I need to get with my neighbor and visit with them, or I, I think I've got to change the trajectory of my life, or we've got to stop worrying about what the world says matters, fame, recognition, safety, security, purpose, whatever. And I've got to start focusing on the things that matter to God, which is honor and obedience and truth. When I begin to get convicted, I've got to give in to that because that is the Father pressing the things that are His 
through the Holy Spirit on my heart. And I don't want to say that lightly. But this is what Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit will come and he will make known to you the things of mine that are the things of God. So as followers of Christ, as the Holy Spirit convicts and leads and guides, and you begin to feel those things, and they begin to line up with things that you see in Scripture, the truth that's in Scripture, the direction that God pointed his people, things that echo through its pages, don't move past those convictions, but surrender to them and say, Jesus, I want what you want. I want to love like you. I want to live like you. I want to follow. If you're calling me to let go of these things, these habits, these disastrous ideas, let me let go of them. I want to be empowered to do that. I want to cut that part out of my life. I don't want to be anchored by fear, by insecurity, by worry. Because you are pressing on me the things that matter to you. And you know what? Fear and insecurity and worry, they don't matter to God. They don't. They don't hold water in God's economy. And so they can't hold water in ours. So as followers of Christ, we say, I want to have the things that matter to God matter to me. And the Holy Spirit reveals those things. So pay attention to your heart. And then finally, the one that he ends with is the one that he ends with the disciples. He says, for a while you won't see me, but you will see me again. Now, for those of us that haven't walked with Jesus, right, which is you and me, we have not physically walked with Christ, this is this incredible promise that one day we will stand in the presence of Jesus. We will see him face to face. And in that moment, all this garbage in this life, this sin, this brokenness, this pain, illness, cancer, hurt, death, all of it will be wiped away. There will be no more tears There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more brokenness. There'll be no more death. We will stand in the presence of Almighty God and we will see face to face Jesus, which is the guiding hope for every single one of us as a follower of Christ that at the end of this life, whenever that may be, at whatever moment he calls me home, I will stand in the presence of my Savior, not condemned to death, but victorious because of his death for me. So my hope in my entire life is that I can, as Paul would say, make it to the end and stand in the presence of my Savior, who I know and have been promised that I will see. So what Jesus lays out for the disciples in all of this is that in the middle of their grief, in the middle of their uncertainty, in the middle of their fear, in the middle of the promise of things like death and persecution and struggle and heartache, he is giving them this incredible promise that the Holy Spirit will come and dwell in them. It will not remove every difficulty they face. Some of them will still die. Most of them will be persecuted. You are not going to walk through life unscathed. You're going to have struggles. You're going to have difficulty. There will be people in your life that you lose, that you love. There will be hiccups. There will be brokenness. This world is shattered. But in the middle of all that, the Holy Spirit will come not to and fill you, not to condemn you of guilt, but to free you. Marking your life as saved and redeemed because of your faith and trust in Jesus. He will guide you in truth and he will reveal the things of God to your heart. And in the end, whatever that day or that moment may be, you will stand in the presence of your Savior, saved and redeemed in the most glorious moment that history and time will ever know for you.
And that's the promise of Jesus. And we can either believe that Jesus is who he said he is or not. And John's entire gospel points us to this fact. Jesus is God. He loves you and he came for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these moments that we gather here and open your word. Even those difficult ones like this text that sometimes have things in them that are are hard to churn through. But the great promises of Scripture, God, are, um, well, they're beyond comprehension. God, I got a lot of garbage in my life. I got a lot of fear. I got a lot of failure. I got a lot of sin. I got a lot of struggle. I got a lot of selfishness. I got a lot of arrogance. I got a lot of ego. I got a lot of hurt. And I know, Lord, that you are bigger than all of those things, that you are the redeemer of all of our brokenness, and that your promise is that we don't stand before you condemned as followers of Christ, that if we give our life to Jesus, we stand before you saved and redeemed, and that you will guide us in truth and that you will reveal the things of God to our hearts. And that one day, God, that I will stand before you in all of your glory that I will stand or kneel or fall before you having been rescued and redeemed by the person of Jesus Christ. Having done nothing to warrant that kind of love on my own that your Holy Spirit will mark and seal my life. I believe that with every breath in my body. And Lord, though I long for that day, I want to be faithful until it comes. And I pray that for all of us, though we long for that day that we will be faithful until it comes. So come, Lord Jesus, and guide us in your presence. Guide us in truth. Convict us, empower us, and redeem us. Through Jesus, our Savior, the one who gave us the Holy Spirit, who sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, May he receive all glory and honor and power forever. Amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. We can lift up thyself.